0: Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. I have another queer member of the church in my home to share their story, and I'm grateful for Mitchell Harris willing to do this. Mitchell will tell his story as non-binary, so if I do a good job in this podcast, I will use they, them pronouns for Mitchell. Um, They will also share their story as a pansexual um, Latter-day Saint. And I'm really grateful for Mitchell, who's a current um, BYU student, to bravely um, share their story. I asked Mitchell before we went live, I said, why do you want to share your story? And he says, I want to help other queer Latter-day Saints that may be earlier on this path. And I want to bring forth stories that we don't traditionally hear in the queer space. And we do have lots of gay and lesbian people on the podcast, but to have a pansexual... Um, Person on the podcast, as well as someone that's non-binary on the podcast, um, is I'm really grateful. And um, our hope is it'll help you if you're queer and also if you're straight that you will have this kind of a story to help you better support queer Latter-day Saints under that umbrella that are non-binary and and or pansexual. Um, Mitchell served a mission in in, um, Mexico City mission. He's a math education manager at. At Brigham Young University, he's in his 20s. He plans to teach high school math. Um, I'm in my 60s, Mitchell, and I still remember my high school math teachers. They made a good impact on my life.
1: I'm glad they made a good
0: one. (laughs) So is that okay for an introduction?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think that that was great. Hit the highlights a little bit. So I will just,
0: I think... (laughs) Mitchell's going to talk about coming out at his bio, um, sort of that will be realizing he's queer. He's going to introduce some terms that I'm not as familiar with, and I'll let him kind of do that during the podcast. And um, there may be some times when I hear stuff or you hear stuff that's new, and my first reaction when I do that now is to sit with that, even though it's uncomfortable for me, and think, is that? changes i need to make in my views to better support somebody that i haven't traditionally heard their story so my guess is we may hear experiences we haven't heard before or maybe not maybe it's just me but i will turn over to you mitchell to sort of to share your story
1: yeah okay um uh just to give an idea of how i'm thinking about this uh i've kind of got this divided into three heads and bleh, three parts in my
2: head let me say words in the right order um first is just kind of be uh, what my life was like
1: until I realized I was queer and then how I realized that um, the second part is going to be uh, some terminology around uh, trans issues especially uh, that I think it's important for everyone to be a little more familiar with and then kind of the third big chunk is uh, the doctrines uh, that have really been my anchor during my experience um, so A little bit about me, I was raised, born and raised in Utah, um, just surrounded by members of the church. Both my parents served missions. Uh, It was a huge part of our life. I was talking to my sister just the other day, and we were reminiscing about how even on vacation, we would go and find some church to go to. And she'd been talking with friends, and they were like, what? So uh, church was always really important. both my parents and really important that they, uh, raise us, um, that way. Um, and growing up, uh, you know, the church always really worked for me. I didn't really have any problems with, uh, any of the teachings around. Um, I was excited to serve a mission. Um, I was still in high school when they made the uh, age change announcement. And so my cohort was that first cohort of 18 year old young men all heading out at once. Um, and so I served a mission, um, a hard, but good experience and, um, came back from my mission. Uh, and I was at BYU for a couple years and Things things just weren't like really really working out for me. It felt like in my personal life, um, I just kind of always felt like things worked better for other people in a way that they weren't working for me, um, and the way I ended up expressing this to myself uh, was I stopped thinking of myself as a person. It sounds kind of weird, but I was like, other people get nice things. People fall in love. People have people love them. And I'm just not experiencing uh, these romantic milestones that I see my peers uh, having. Um,
2: You know, not for lack of trying. It just wasn't working out. Um, And I, I was just feeling really uneasy about a lot of things. And, um, it actually happened that I, uh, got on to Twitter because of a, uh,
1: um, class that I was taking at BYU. They required us to make a Twitter account. Um, and through that Twitter account, uh, I made the decision to follow a lot of people who weren't like me. So, I was following uh, people who were Muslim, people who were African American, people who were from different countries, um, really taking in a lot of experiences that, as a white kid in Provo and Northern Utah, I just wasn't interacting with. Um, So, uh, through that, I started to read and empathize and really identify with uh, different queer experiences
2: um the the kind of constant presence that something was off and
1: yeah i didn't really want to i didn't really want to touch that with a 10 foot pole because um, you know the church has always been uh so strong against homosexuality and uh kind of silently disapproving of uh transgender identities and so I just thought, you know what? I mean, I'm not feeling really strongly about these things. So I'm just gonna kind of ignore it.
2: Um, but then I ended up actually listening to the Listen Learn Love podcast coming full circle. And
1: I learned it was okay. It was okay that I felt attraction for people who weren't women. It was okay that I didn't always really feel like a man. And these things were, uh, essential parts of me as a child of God. Um, you know, especially one thing that I really remember learning that just sticks out to me was the, that gay people and straight people most of the time just feel nothing for the gender they're not attracted to. Um, and that blew my mind because growing up in the church had this idea of, you know, being attracted to women is good in the godly way, and being attracted to men is a temptation of Satan. And so I always felt like inside of me there was like that godly part, and there was that uh, part giving in to Satan feeling uh, these feelings for men. And once I realized like that was okay, I could think about it. Um, it gave me a whole different perspective on my life before, where I... You remember as a kid, um, I liked to get my nails painted with my sisters and I would play Barbie dolls with them. Uh, but both of those things, I ended up having very shaming experiences with my peers um, that that's not, that's not what a boy does. So I quit
2: doing it. Um, I, uh, re- I remembered in high school... Um, a while I
1: was in choir and it became popular among the choir guys to talk about man crush Mondays. And uh I was kind of like, oh, so maybe like other guys are feeling like kind of the same way I do. And then one day it hit me that no, it wasn't like that when they were saying man crush, I wasn't like I'm attracted to, it was more like I admire. And it was just kind of a little personally devastating in that moment that I was like, oh, I'm the weird one here. Never mind. And Um, I, I didn't realize it really at the time, but there was a, there was a boy I went to high school with that I definitely had a crush on. Um, I, I remember being jealous multiple times of his girlfriend, like, ah, I wish that was me. And, And I, and I just kind of ignored all that because like, I still had crushes on girls. I still wanted to date girls. Um, and so I could just kind of ignore that before and be like, oh, that's this is not a thing to think about. Never mind. Um
2: <laughs> but now, I mean, that's that's just part of who I am. I just um you know I I have come into uh
1: thinking of myself as I'm a person who's attracted to people. And I think that's the easy simple way to explain it and the uh, maybe more specific language is pansexual non-binary for me.
2: Um, that, uh, gender isn't an essential part of how I consider attraction to people and
1: that I don't strongly identify with either the male or the, the man or the woman's roles in our society. I kind of kind of how it ends up working out in my feelings is i kind of just want to ambiguously be um it's podcast you can't see me but i've uh managed to grow my hair long despite being a byu student because of uh, involvement in the book of mormon videos that gave me a hair permission um and like my long hair is something i actually started growing uh back in high school when uh Kind of in my mid-teens, my hair started to curl and I really liked how it looked long when as a kid before it had been really straight. So that was, that was fun. And I remember one time my aunt said to me, oh, that long hair makes you look like a girl. And I, just, I kind of brushed it off and I was like, yeah, like whatever, whatever. But really on the inside, I was like, nice. I like that. I'm, I'm glad about that thing you just said to me
2: that was meant to dissuade me from having long hair. Um, so I'm, uh, it's kind of an ever constant struggle
1: for me to think about how I want to present myself so that other people, uh, see
2: me how I want to be understood. Um, and, um, I think, I think that's, that's the main points. That's the main highlights up to now. Um,
0: Mitchell, thanks on behalf of our listeners for your courage to share that much of your story. It's a unique story. And the journey you've gotten to get here is a remarkable story. And I'm glad that our guests on the podcast have been helpful to you. They've certainly taught me a lot. And listeners, if you haven't heard me talk about this, I just think everybody needs to feel how they're created is how they're intended to be created, queer or straight. It puts everybody on the same moral footing. Um, to think that their heavenly parents created them as intended, and I think it takes shame, and you've talked about that a little bit out of the equation that to me that doesn't change the doctrine of our church or our teachings. it just helps everybody feel that how they're created is a good thing, and that crushes and natural attractions, whether they're to the same sex or the opposite sex, are normal things that are built into people based on how they're created <clears throat> and um that's kind of where my guests have leaded me, led me to that space. And um, I think it's more likely people will make good decisions going forward if they're not shame-based and if they don't feel they're somehow a mistake. And uh, respect for you to getting this point at an early point in your life and not spending multiple decades. Um, I like, I mean, it just because I asked Mitchell a little bit ahead of time before we went live to help me understand. And so I'm going to ask Mitchell to, um, to me, from what Mitchell has taught me and others, non-binary is gender expression. So you feel, and that's why I'm using they, them pronouns to honor and to support your non-binary gender expression. And you've touched on that a little bit. You just, you know, you don't feel into the social construct where you're neatly feel like you're male or neatly feel like you're female. You own all of that about you in a way that, Maybe society doesn't completely support, but you feel is right for you. And that example, you said that somebody said you had long hair and you currently do have long hair, and I'm glad you're in the Book of Mormon videos. That was a positive experience for you. And so I think that's a, for me, hearing that says that, yeah, this, this I was going to say guy, maybe that's an umbrella term enough for non-binary, <laughs> I don't know. Um, that resonated with you as a non-binary person pansexual on the other hand is not about gender expression i think you're it's about how you your sexual orientation mm-hmm. your sexual and it sounds like that you just use the vocabulary used before because i like that you're say that again
1: i'm a person attracted to people that one yeah yeah um yeah so and
0: yeah so just drill a little bit more on that because some people want to put that into men or women and you want to put it into people
1: yeah exactly um so once you move out of um, heterosexual and homosexual for sexual orientations, um, it's kind of the wild west of terms. There's a lot of words that a lot of people have used and adopted for a lot of different reasons. Um, bisexual, uh, omnisexual is one, pansexual, and those are, those are kind of maybe the big three um, and there's there's still others that you know, as people have explored and
2: tried to um, give a label that can adequately explain what they feel um, then uh you know we're we're trying to convey to people that what we feel
1: is different in a simple, concise way, and so so pansexual is about. Being able to be attracted to any
2: person regardless of their gender. Um, And in,
1: uh, so that can, they can kind of be different from how some people might adopt the term because uh, for some people, even if they're attracted to people of both genders, um, that gender is still important. Um, You know, the way someone might be attracted to a man is different from the way they're attracted to a woman. And that's a valid experience. But uh, in my experience, um, like if I find a man attractive for being strong and tough and like physically capable, well, I'll also be attracted to a woman who's strong and tough and physically capable. Um, so for my experience of attraction, gender just kind of ends up being just a thing about that person and isn't always the motivating factor for why I might develop a crush on a person.
0: That's very helpful. Um, So thank you for that and um, helping us better understand. You want to go to your next section?
1: Yeah. Um, So as a non-binary person, uh, I am trans. I am one of the transgender people of this world. And so just to start, transgender means that you identify with your gender as something other than what you were assigned. So in our society, you're assigned at birth man or woman pretty much all the time and so being trans is just the simple fact that you don't
2: fully uh accept or feel comfortable in that label and in that construct um
1: so we we could perhaps imagine a different world where gender wasn't assigned at birth and we just raised children and allowed children just like when they grow up and start figuring out their crushes, we allow them to figure out what their gender expression is, then maybe in that world, no one would ever be trans because you never assigned them something. So transgender indicates that difference between what you're assigned and what you feel. And the twin of that is cisgender, which is people who are born assigned a gender and feel comfortable in that gender during their life. Um, And so, understanding those two terms um, can bring us to a new space um, where we can understand this term transmedicalism. And transmedicalism is a way of viewing trans people that says that the only trans people who really exist are people who have diagnosed gender dysphoria by a medical professional and undergo. Uh, hormone replacement and uh, surgeries to affirm that gender that they choose to express as. And transmedicalism is problematic because it really, it reinforces uh, the binary of man and woman and that there is no other place to be. Um, Because in my case, although I don't feel like a man and You know, in some ways want to be more like a woman, I also don't just want to be a woman. I don't want to be either of the things. And in my case, I'm totally comfortable in my body as it is. I don't feel a need to do any kind of surgeries or any kind of hormone replacements. And so if you hold to this idea of transmedicalism, uh, you probably would tell me I'm just confused. I'm just a little bit I'm just a little bit different. I'm still a man, but just you know, you're sure you're not interested in all the guy things. That's okay, but you're still a man. And what I'm what I'm saying is fundamentally no. I I don't want to try to be a man. I I can remember even back in elementary school, I had this like moment of crisis where I was like, ah, oh, I'm not very manly. And then I was just like, well, I just never will be, and that's fine. That's just not who I am. And that repeated throughout my, my adolescence that in a lot of ways, I'm very far from what uh, the societal archetype of a man is. And I was okay with that. Like, that's not what I wanted to be. Um, and that doesn't mean I want to be a woman. I just, I just want to be me. I'm just, I'm just a person trying to person my way around in the world and um, show who I am. And so, instead of getting stuck in this transmedicalism, um, it's more helpful to think about gender dysphoria and gender euphoria. And gender dysphoria is is that feeling that something is off. Um, you know, for me, I actually I really don't like having facial hair. It it always makes me feel like something's off. I'm like, oh, this is not good. Um, so. And you know, for some people, and this is what is recognized in transmedicalism, dysphoria can be so bad that it really deeply impacts your life. And you know, that's where you get a lot of suicidality and a lot of depression. Is people who are so far off the mark that just their entire existence is disturbing to them. And so you don't necessarily always need to go all the way to, you know that level to think I'm experiencing some gender dysphoria. Um, and for me, it's often, it's just smaller things that I'm like, Ooh, that's a, that's a little uncomfortable. I just don't, I just don't like having facial hair. So I try to stay clean shaved. And on the other hand, um, gender euphoria sometimes can be more instructive as a way to understand our gender because it's about finding joy in your gender. Um, like I mentioned when I was told that uh, my long hair made me look like a girl and I was happy about it. That was a little moment of euphoria. Um, and, you know, it took me a long time to really understand that I did like having long hair. Um, you know, my, uh, my mom's a lovely woman. I love her very much. She did not like me having long hair. And so we, had made, we made an agreement that every year on her birthday, I would get a buzz cut. And she would let me grow it out the rest of the year. <laughs> um, and I never minded having short hair. So what I, what I always told myself was, oh, like, well, I guess I just, I just don't like getting haircuts. Um, and it wasn't until I was older and got involved in the Book of Mormon production and, like, regrew out my hair again that I was like, oh, I just like having long hair. It makes me feel good about myself. Um, It's a little piece of euphoria for me. Um, Yeah, any questions about what I've said?
0: Uh, Listeners, I'm learning some things. Um, I think I'm learning it. I've sort of been in this binary category of gender dysphoria and the people that are trans, it's this long-term gender dysphoria and they have to sort of deal with that the best way they can. In fact, I did an earlier episode about talking to that group and I've heard some of this, but I think Mitchell's the first person helping me to understand there's kind of a different group here. Um, because you don't, you're non-binary, but you don't feel gender dysphoria. And I probably have never quite heard that. And the way you talk about it just makes sense. And then when you said, I don't want to transition because there's no dysphoria, I just want to feel peace being non-binary because this is the way I've always felt. And I guess the question I have, I'm not even sure I can articulate it right, is. Would you be is non do you identify as non binary because you need to because of the social constructs around men and women
1: roles, or do you wish this isn't really a question, or do you feel like do I have a third secret gender that isn't man or woman?
0: Well, I don't know. Yeah, I was just thinking about all the social constructs around man Mm -hmm. and woman, and that didn't work for you. But being non binary is it almost makes me wish that we had less social constructs about men and women and more space for you to have long hair and still identify the way you identify and not put you in these tight categories that sometimes people just don't fit in. Mm-hmm. And I guess what you're saying is I don't fit those categories. I'm non-binary. And yeah. It, so I don't know if you've got any more thoughts on that. I don't know if there was
1: yeah, a question you know, in I, there. Think, I think maybe <laughs> what you're getting at is uh, this idea of gender essentialism uh, versus gender abolition. And gender essentialism is, I'd probably say it's what the church teaches. Men are men and they have specific qualities because they are men and women are women and they have specific qualities because they are women. And it's gender essentialism views those differences as in it. There's,
2: there's no way to go back and forth between them. And, uh, gender abolition kind of
1: sees through to the constructs and says, what if we remove all these constructs of gender and allow people to express themselves as they wish
2: and we don't worry about it? And, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what the right answer
1: is, except that the right answer is not gender essentialism. That's not helpful. It causes great pain in people and it even cis people it causes pain too right because this gender essentialism is you know why you get maybe a woman who you know feels more in line with like the outdoors and sports feels out of place in society or why a fully cis man who you know he likes the arts he likes the drama he likes to act and he maybe feels a little out of place so gender essentialism isn't just hurting trans people. It's also hurting cis people who want to live their lives just maybe a little bit outside of that societal norm. And I don't, I don't want to take it away from anyone because I know for some people it's very important. You feel like a man, you feel like a woman and that's like, those are key parts of your identity. Um, but kind of for me, who's always been adrift, I'm kind of like, eh, this gender thing, kind of
2: fun, kind of, Kind of problematic sometimes. Um, so, you know, I I don't know
1: that there's a right place to be at um, other than to accept that not everyone wants to fit into the box of man or woman. It's a
0: really thoughtful segment. And even tying in cis people to this um, concept was really helpful. So thank you for that. You have a very good way of sharing your own story. Uh, Mitchell but also sort of creating a bigger picture for
2: other people and how they're walking this road so keep sharing
1: yeah so I maybe just kind of the uh yeah. takeaway from this section on trans people I is especially let people social transition and social transition is like right now uh, Richard's using they them for me um social transition is that I'm wearing long hair and you can't see it, but it's actually pulled to the side and a little kind of low side ponytail look that it's not really a masculine way to wear long hair even. Um, so like these, these social transition things we should just always allow people to try out and especially kids and teenagers. And you know, you hear a lot like, what if it's just a phase? Yeah, sure. It can be a phase. Like if you're wondering about your, your gender expression and you're like, you know what, maybe, maybe I'd like to try out they, them pronouns. Maybe, maybe that would be a thing for me. Like do it, try it out. And you know, if it doesn't work, then okay.
2: Like do something different. You know, um, we don't need to try to gatekeep, um,
1: not a, not vibing, I guess, with these identities societies placed on us. Um, so if someone wants to try something outside of the norm for their gender, let them. So if it's a phase, great. They've learned something about themselves, you know? Um, there's nothing wrong with a phase of experimentation. There's nothing wrong with a phase of asking deep questions about yourself and, um, coming to some conclusions. Um, because, you know, maybe, maybe you've never asked yourself questions. Maybe you've never felt the need to. And so you don't understand why someone else might. Um, and that's okay. That's fine. I like, if you, you're, you're completely hundred percent good with the way society looks at you. Fantastic. I love that for you. And I just want, you to make space for other people to have society look at them the way they want to.
2: Very thoughtful segment. Thank you, Mitchell.
1: Um, I guess if there's, uh, not anything else we can yeah, let's, move on to our next part. Let's go to your next one. Okay. Um, so here's, here's some things that have helped me as a queer member of the church. um, and these are, these are, I would say fundamental doctrines. Um, these are things that I guess, well, there's one of these is maybe a little less fundamental, but we'll get into that. Um, so the, the core, the core really of everything for me always is that I am a child of heavenly parents. Um, I know it's a primary hymn, but boy, I am a child of God
2: is some of the most profound doctrine that we have. And if you really think about what it means to be a child of divinity and what it means that everyone around you is a child of divinity, I can't even put into words the way it makes me feel. It is so incredible and awe-inspiring to think that our heavenly parents are there
1: for us and they have that love for us and they want what's best for us. Um, you know, they don't want us to live a life that's unhappy. Men are that they might have joy because we are children of God. And
2: that's what God wants is for us to find joy, for us to live happily. Um, and just really, really internalizing that and knowing it, Has
1: been a solid rock for me in all my hard times and all the times I've been angry with God. I've always been able to go
2: to Him and find comfort. And, you know, um, let's not forget Heavenly Mother either. Um, I know for me, I love that she's there, I've felt her love. Um, <coughs> it's not
1: always as present for me. And, uh, cause the thing that I've learned is, uh, when we think of God, the father and God, the mother, uh, we tend to think of them as we know masculinity and femininity. And, uh, since I grew up in this space where I thought of myself as a man for almost 25 years. Um, I oftentimes envisioned God in a man the much the same way that I envisioned myself. S- um, so my God, my father was not a archetypical manly man who was tough and stoic. Uh, there was more to him than that. And, um, so I love Heavenly Mother and have received, um, strong promptings from that direction. Um, and so, you know, she's important too, and, uh, but just often when I talk, that just hasn't been a key part for me, but they are both there and they, they love me, they love you, they love us all. And man, that's incredible.
2: Agreed. Well said.
1: Um, so uh, the next part, uh, this part, this part did concern Richard a little bit uh, before <laughs> we started because uh, I wrote in my outline, prophets can be wrong, actually. Um, made him a little nervous about what the, uh, tone of this next section would be. Um, and so let me be clear. Um, I do believe that Russell M. Nelson is a prophet of God as was Monson before him. Um, those are the two that I have personal testimonies of because Granby Hinckley, I just grew up with. So I just kind of accepted that he was a prophet. Um, but I have received confirmation that those men are servants chosen by God. And so what I, what I mean when I say prophets can be wrong, actually isn't to just disbelieve everything prophets say. They are important people that God has picked for a reason. Rather the role they serve is important. It's not that they themselves were important before God picked that role for them. Um, and so We need to remember as a church though, that our doctrine is not that the prophet is always right about everything he always says. Prophetic infallibility is not a doctrine of our church. And it can be hard to grapple with that. It does make it more complex to think that sometimes the prophet messes up. Sometimes the prophet is wrong. Um, But my favorite example of a prophet being wrong that we can all think about and ponder on is Jonah. Jonah was called to go to Nineveh to preach, and he didn't. You know, we we all sometimes just don't want to follow what God says. So that's fine. And he got swallowed by a well for it, right? Decides to go to Nineveh. He preaches, and the people repent. They accept the gospel. Awesome. He should be so thrilled, right? No, he goes outside the city and like lays down and complains about it. He's like, "Come on, God. Why did they repent? I wanted to see them destroyed." Like that doesn't seem doesn't seem very right of a prophet to want the people he preached to destroyed. <laughs> um and so, you know, we can we can find truth in the prophet's teachings, but we need to always get that confirmation from God for ourselves and find the way that it guides us for ourselves because if we don't do that, then there is no space in the church for queer people. And I don't think that's right. I don't think that's the way God intended it to be. And so in the meantime, we need to hold space for people who have problems with what prophets have said, because, you know, maybe in the long run of history, we're going to see they were right.
2: I like that listeners. Um, I like that
0: one of the, I like that Mitchell went to the Old Testament because culturally in our church, I think it's easier for us to talk about biblical prophets and the mistakes they've made than modern
1: day prophets. I could talk about those too, (laughs) but uh, that might be a little too spicy for this podcast.
0: And I just, you know, I recognize Mitchell said, I sustain and support the prophet and I follow the prophet and I don't claim to know more than the prophet. But I think one way to stay in the church is this sort of, nuanced view that Mitchell shares and that others shares is, it doesn't mean, it just means that we acknowledge they're not perfect and doing their best and give them grace and, and recognize the the restoration is ongoing. And I do recognize that queer people are generally having, you know, with a capital G, a more difficult experience in the church than straight people. Now there may be exceptions to that, but I, I've always felt the gospel would be equally hopeful and healing and inclusive for all of God's children. So I think we've got work to do in this space. And it's often people like Mitchell sharing their story that helps us know how to do better. So that's kind of, you know, just that's where I am too on this. And I hope culturally we can mature to just, because I think some members just need to feel space that we have a culture that doesn't feel. We sort of say the prophets aren't perfect, but we never sort of allow that to happen um, in our class discussions, in our culture. And maybe we can allow that in a thoughtful, respectful way that allows more people to feel like, okay, I can hang on because we're sort of in a world where we have work to do while we sustain our leaders. So,
1: yeah, makes, that's, that's perfect. I think that's what it's about is opening space for people who have questions, you know. Like you say a lot, there's there's no requirement for a testimony at church. You know, we should all be able to be there with wherever we're at and feel comfortable being there with wherever we're at. And then this is a
0: huge sidetrack, but I wondered if non-binary people, this is a dissertation, just have a better skills to sort of manage complex issues because they're non-binary and sort of less of a black and white view of all um, political issues, world issues, social issues, and just are better at seeing both sides and sort of recognizing often their nuance and everything. So that's a old sidetrack that just well, came I, to
1: my mind. You know, just because yeah, you have would,
0: really good skills here of just managing complexity.
1: I I think you're onto something there actually, um, because yeah, there there are so many ways the world presents itself as binary to us: good and evil. Um, Right and wrong, and you know, so many ways that we judge specific things on
2: that good and evil uh, axis, I guess. Um, and like, I used to be a very black and white
1: thinker. Um, uh, rules were the rules, and you obeyed the rules, and that that was that. And something that started to crack this open for me was my mission president, who always gave what I considered a ridiculous degree of leeway to people. Like I thought he was so forgiving and like so merciful, just like beyond, beyond what was acceptable. I was like, I know, I know God forgives, but you're forgiving too much. And it really started me on this path where I started to reconsider how did I think about God and how did I, how, how was God forgiving me? in the same way that my mission president was forgiving elders who i thought were getting off too easy and there there's something that really opens up to you when you can exit spaces of either this or that and you can allow yourself i you know instead of black and white i i try to enjoy all the rich grays there's so much in the middle there and I find myself more and more attracted to hanging out in these complex spaces and enjoying the beauty of creation in all that there is.
2: That's beautiful. Thank you.
0: We've got about 20 minutes left, so I'll just kind of let you continue. I've got another section or two here.
1: Yeah. Oh, no, I hit the wrong button. Um, So... Uh, building out of the prophets can be wrong sometimes. This is going to be my one break from fundamental doctrine to doctrine that has helped me stay. That I don't think is like the biggest deal, but is still very important. And that's uh, about the law of chastity, where we're doing a little bit of chastity talk, folks. Um, I felt really good about this after the uh, recent uh, podcast you did about repentance, where it was like your solo podcast yeah. going through different things. And you touched on this same idea that in Alma 39, uh, Alma chapter 39, we are given often this interpretation that breaking the law of chastity is the sin next to murder. And uh, as as right now, the church teaches homosexuality and you know, any kind of homosexual romantic relationship is a violation of the law of chastity. And we're not going to go into that part of it right now. We're just going to say, that's what the church teaches. And if the church also teaches that chastity, breaking the law of chastity is next to murder, then any gay relationship is next to murder in the church. And hopefully you're already seeing why that's maybe a little silly to think. Uh, Kissing a boy if you're a boy, kissing a woman if you're a woman, is not almost the same as murdering someone, okay, guys? Uh, It shouldn't have to be said. Um, And so on my my Twitter account where I, I, this is where I first came out, it was on Twitter as, uh, Mormon pan, um, with the nickname Panda Mormonium, because I'm Mormon. It's a little chaotic up in here, a little pandemonium. Um, so what I think is, if I'm just, I'm just going to read from this thread that I made three years now, uh, look at what Alma says is grievous Corianton left his ministry. It is no excuse for thee. thou shouldst have tended to thy ministry. That's what precedes the question, know ye not these things are abominable? This makes an intuitive sense to me. The worst sin is for us to deny the Holy Ghost, which is our own spiritual death. Next is ending someone's earthly life prematurely and without reason. And third is weakening other testimonies by our actions. If you're still not convinced, in verse seven, Alma again says, so great a crime without reference to sexual sin. Only later in verse nine, does he bring lust into the conversation, at which point it does seem to be grouped with other sins. Uh, the final nail in the coffin, Corianton should resist temptation, not just for his own salvation, but also because how his example affects those he has been given stewardship over. This effect on the Zoramites was Corianton's crime. Um, and I think this really ties back to Alma's own experience of how, how bad it is to be in a sinful state. If we remember, you know, he cried out, he was racked with guilt. Um, and so the law of chastity is still important, and Alma doesn't shy away from calling out Corianton on that aspect of his actions here. But the main purpose of this call to repentance is to inspire Corianton to faithfully guide those he has responsibility for. If Alma really was concerned about the law of chastity there. Yeah, that's what he would have been focusing on, and that's not his focus. His focus is on bringing people to the gospel and how giving a poor example can hurt people in their journey to coming to the gospel. And so, you know, we can, this is really important, especially as a queer member of the church, because thinking that sexual sin is right next to murder just brings a really judgmental mindset and it causes a lot of pain and harm. And Again, also, this impacts straight members of the church. You know, when you commit a sexual sin and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I've almost murdered someone, like that is a huge amount of guilt. And I'm not saying it isn't a commandment and they're like, go have sex, folks. Like, no, nah, like, live the law of chastity. It's still a commandment, but it is not next to murder. And understanding that helped me accept that I could have feelings because feeling attracted to a man was not almost like feeling the urge to murder someone. Like that's, these aren't comparable things.
0: That was a really good segment. And we just talk about complicated issues on this platform, listeners. And what you said at the very end was, um, I want to come back to that segment, but, you know, people have. The urge to murder people. (laughs) They have, they want to do that and they're controlling themselves not to do that. They may have plans. They may have dreams about it. They may actually be very close to doing it. Um, But feeling, um, that's different than feeling feelings for your own sex if you're not straight. Mm -hmm. And I've learned to, my feeling is just as we talked about earlier, is feelings need to be normalized. Even sexual feelings need to be organized. We're sexual beings. And if we're straight, we're going to have feelings towards the opposite sex. If we're somewhere in the middle, we're going to have feelings towards both. And if we're pure homosexual, we're going to have feelings. And I think normalizing feelings is a good thing. And I think we look at what you've taught us and what I believe is that Heavenly Parents created us as intended. And I don't think having feelings is a sin or should create shame or changes our doctrine. But you separated in a really thoughtful way feelings to murder somebody, which I don't think come from God. <laughs> and, our, and we have agency not to have those feelings and to work through the anger, pain, or whatever reasons we're planning to murder somebody to not do that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Those feelings are not consistent with God's plan. We can't just say, well, God made me do it because I had these feelings. <laughs>
1: neither of us are saying that. The natural man is the enemy of God. <laughs> like, the, Yes, we you have yeah. feelings that go contrary to the commandments sometimes. Um, in fact, I'd say the
0: natural man. I've thought a lot about the natural man. I put this in my first book. I don't think it's part of the natural man to have feelings towards your same sex. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think the natural man kicks in as what you do with all these feelings. You having feelings to murder somebody is the natural man.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and I think that's a learned thing through something that's happened in your life that you want to murder somebody. So I love that distinction and normalizing feelings that are meant to be normalized, but not others. Um, I've always felt, yeah, when I was in, I don't want to make sure I don't take over your story, but I've always felt, yeah. you know, the people that had messed up and had been sexually active before marriage. Um, they all recognized it was a sin, but this sort of culture—I don't think it's our doctrine—but it's been taught at times that it's a sin next to murder. And when one or two apostles or prophets say that, or you know, I think it needs to be consistently said by all fifteen. One institute professor taught me kind of the spoke in a wheel. When one person says it, one leader it may be a spoke. But you kind of have to wait till all of them say it and be kind of all fifteen spokes in a wheel. So I'm not sure this was ever said. By all 15, it may have been said by one or even a prophet at the time, but I don't think it's held, but it's held in our culture sometimes. And so then it creates so much shame if you've been sexually active that I've always felt Satan doesn't win if we mess up. He messes, He wins if we can keep us in disconnected from God and the atonement mm-hmm. and the ability to work forward or feel our past is forever changed. And neither Mitchell or I are inviting people to sin, but if you have messed up, Um, The things that I think Mitchell's teaching help us to have hope that our future isn't changed, and this is part of mortality to move forward and learn and grow. And it's not the sin next to murder. Now, if you're married, it's a little more serious than a single person um, because you're in a vow, and we could talk about that, and there's obviously other people involved. But anyway.
1: It's still not next to murder.
0: Still not next to murder. (laughs)
1: Um, just worse. And
0: it's just well said. So I want to keep you going on your story yeah. without getting too sidetracked with my no, that's thoughts. Okay.
1: I, I, yeah, I think you said something really important about, it's not about never messing up. It's about us always moving forward. Um,
2: you know, um, I've fallen many times in my life. I've been so low and
1: that's when the hand of Christ reaches out and picks me up. That's when Jesus makes himself evident as my savior. And it's because he's there that I can keep moving forward. And this is, this is my last point um, that for me was fundamental is to think less atonement and more Jesus. And I think that, that sounds weird. You're like, what do you, what do you mean less atonement and more Jesus? But I think sometimes We get very casual in the church equating Jesus and the atonement, and Jesus is a person who helps us, and the atonement is a thing that he did. And I hear or see things like the atonement helped me, Um, the atonement is there for us, and sorry, it's not, it's it's not, it's not helping me. It's not helping you. It's Jesus Christ helping us through his atonement. It's. It's like if I had needed a surgery for appendicitis, and so I go to the hospital, I get attended, and I come out and I go, that medical degree, I'm glad I accessed it. Its power helped me so much. It wasn't the medical degree. It was the doctor who had the medical degree, who had the knowledge and acted to help you. Jesus has knowledge and power that he gained through the atonement and he uses that knowledge and power to help us. We don't access it. We don't somehow use the power of the atonement in our lives. Jesus Christ uses it in our lives for us when we come to him and really understanding that helped me feel so much closer to him because I went through a phase where I was feeling really distant from God, even though I felt like I was doing everything and I realized is because I was trying to use the atonement, not coming to Jesus and letting him use the atonement. And the more, the more we can come closer to our Savior, the better off we are. Um, there is no greater truth than that because it is through Jesus Christ that we can be forgiven. It is through Jesus Christ that this life has greater meaning. And and we need to reach out to him to find help. We don't, and that it's also just more helpful because I can think of reaching out to a person and getting help from a person instead of this nebulous idea, this atonement, this mixture of suffering and knowledge and prices paid that Jesus did for me.
2: Uh, He can help me. He can know me. He can love me. The atonement can't do any of that. It's a really good
0: segment. Any backstory more of why you came to that? You shared some of your own story, and that's a really
2: thoughtful way to look at things that I think is doctrinally accurate. Um,
1: yeah, it's not, it's, I don't really have any
2: because
1: like, you're a big thinker, Mitchell. That I'm like, <laughs> you're a math education major, but you've got some <laughs> theologian in you. <laughs> I, yeah, I do, I do like to learn my theology. Um, I I am sometimes slow to recognize, uh, my own emotional states for a variety of reasons. And so when I feel like something is off in the gospel, it can often take me a long time to figure out, uh, why I'm feeling that way. Um, you know, one part of that is I struggle with depression and when you're depressed, and it's really hard. It's really on, on you. It's, you just feel sad. It's just, you know, you're down. Or at least for me, that's how it is. I'm just, I'm down. It's hard to access any uh, light from God at times. Um, and so there's just a lot of times where I'll get distant and I can't quite identify that distance. And it, that was what happened for me with this Christ and atonement distinction is that I, I just felt further away from God than it seemed like I should. And, uh, it just kind of came to me, I guess, as I, I think I was, I I might've just been praying or thinking something like, I'm using the atonement. I'm like, I'm, I'm doing the things. And I just got this feeling that no, no, you, you don't use the atonement. (laughs) And the atonement is something Jesus Christ has done for me. And as I have tried to cultivate a mindfulness around uh, my language with that, and as I tried to think about when I repent, it is the saving power of Jesus Christ. When I am feeling sad, it is the comforting power of Jesus Christ. Um, knowing there's a human on the other end of it, even if he's you know ascended to deity, he's lived on this earth. He knows what it's like. And he suffered specifically what I have so that now he knows how to tend to me. And it is so much more personalizing and strengthening to me to think of Christ acting on my behalf instead of
2: trying to think of this idea, this concept working in my favor. It's very thoughtful. Um, We've got, we're kind of at the five minute left, Mark. More things you'd like to share?
1: i I think I've said uh most everything um i guess I guess I haven't said this yet um so part of the reason I'm here today uh is that, like I said, sometimes I'm slow on realizing why I'm not making spiritual progress, and uh right after I kind of came out to myself and realized I was queer and had all this stuff going on, uh rolled around the spring conference, and uh, it was. Uh, 2019, which if I remember right, is the conference where Russell M. Nelson was sustained as our prophet. And I wish I had taken some better notes because I don't remember what speaker I got this impression during, but I got the impression that I needed to come out to my family. And, uh, well, a lot of things happened. There was a pandemic. I had, uh, previously some other family tragedies and like I just ended up in a space where this is not what I was thinking about and so it was only recently that I uh, uh multiple times over the past few years I would feel like god why am I stagnating god would be like hey because you never told your family you're queer you want to try that I already told you that one and so I finally completed that process uh last year sometime And so then I was like, okay, God, cool. I did that. Uh, what's the next step? I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm good to go now. Right. Just hang out at church. My family knows that's fine. And, uh, the next prompting was that I needed to, uh, start being more public and start, um, owning my identity and owning who I was in a public way as part of the body of Christ.
2: And here you are. And so
1: here I am today trying to do a little bit of that.
0: Don't remind people how to find you on Twitter. We'll link to that in the show notes, listeners. Uh,
1: Yeah. So on Twitter, my handle is at Mormon Pan. Um, Hopefully in the near future, uh, I'm I'm planning to start a YouTube channel where I can have this type of mormon theological discussion it's also probably going to be a little political it's just going to be a space good uh to cultivate some other ideas inside the church inside no maybe not inside the church but like inside mormon culture more generally where um you know we get stuck thinking in certain ways um and i'd like us to not do that i'd like us to consider possibilities and to go to God with questions that we have. Um, so uh, when whenever that gets off the ground, I hope to make it soon. Um, then that will be posted on my Twitter. and uh, yeah, so so for now, Mormon Pan, where you can find me for uh trans related politics, uh, some Mormon space
2: thought, and yeah.
1: Uh, listeners,
0: I never quite know what we're going to talk about in a podcast, but I've just been deeply moved um, by the things Mitchell Harris has shared with us. One of the things that often comes to my mind when I meet a queer Latter-day Saint is um, the depth of spiritual work they've done because they haven't fit in the box, and it hasn't, and so their relationship with heavenly parents, their understanding of Christ, the importance of these. Fundamental fundamental relationships and developing skills to help them because you can tell Mitchell um, has a deep testimony of the church and has served a mission and wants to continue to grow the body of Christ and so it gives me hope for the future when I hear people like Mitchell talk about his vision for the church and to create Zion and to create space for people and I also recognize his gifts help us grow as a faith and. If I go to Elder's Quorum or wherever you are, and maybe because you don't fit in the gender binary, I'm a little uncomfortable with you or wouldn't sit by you or wouldn't ask you to teach a lesson or wouldn't ask your question, which might be some of my natural reactions, to be honest, then I miss the conversation we just had over the last hour. It was deeply moving and deeply helpful and deeply um, invigorating for us as Latter-day Saints and especially to hear a queer story. But part of your story is your insight in the gospel of Jesus Christ and help us to do better. And we're missing that if we don't create space. So, is that okay? What I said?
1: Yeah, that sounded great to me. Um, yeah, if uh, if you don't have any other questions for me, I think I'd like to close reading kind Good. of an open oh, letter that I wrote. Let's uh, close with that then. a couple years back. Um, so, this letter is on my Twitter. Uh, profile. It's my pinned tweet, um, so that you can, if you if you hear something here you like, you can find it easy because uh, this has been a meaningful one to me that I've gone back and uh, revisited. Um, and I originally wrote it to uh, one of the apostles. I just said, "Dear Church Authority," but today today I'm going to uh, we're going to readdress this to dear church member. Um, so this is especially to church members who are unsure about this whole LGBTQIA plus space, who are unsure about interacting uh, with us and our stories. Um, and the, the party line of the church really appeals to you about what you've heard over the pulpit. Um, Dear church member, I heard your recent comments on sexual orientation and gender identity, and it made me feel a lot of ways as I remembered my confusion about who I was and why I felt certain things. I knew that some men attracted me. I was dying to try on some dresses. I wanted to be beautiful sometimes, and I wished always to be like other people, because I knew I wasn't like them. I swallowed and digested church teachings that homosexuality was sin, and cultural concepts of gender wrapped me in the cloaks of boy, young man, and priesthood holder. I lived it and believed it fervently, so I believed fervently that something was wrong with me. I never felt that something was wrong, but something wasn't right. Weren't we all going through a similar terrestrial test? Why didn't I ever hear the questions I asked myself? And why, when I searched for answers, did I find silence instead of solace? But then I came to the understanding that 99% of everything we do is nothing but a social construct. Yes, there are eternal truths, and they do not speak about what it means to be male or female. They do not speak about feeling trapped in a world between, caught in a place you can't breathe. I'm not gay, but I am jealous of his girlfriend. I wish I could dress and look fancier, but men don't do that. I don't understand how men can't write women well. We're all humans. Homosexuals are obviously not any different than heterosexuals. Just because a guy's gay doesn't mean he'll like you. Do you like every girl you'll see? Yet when I turn to the church for answers about my eternal soul, I find a reactionary document written 20 years too late being trumpeted as prophetic. I find that those who should listen and understand say, we don't know, but you are wrong. A perfect God who makes no mistake has somehow made me a mistake. I feel this in my bones. I don't need to hear it from you, but I do. Where am I in your loving God's plan for all? Why does he speak to you but not to me? Or have I had it backwards all along? And she is whispering to me that I am beautiful and triumphant and glorious and exactly who she and my father wanted me to be. (laughs) While you have not sincerely sought to understand and so you don't receive, Is it because you flinch away from the pain we expose, pain you've never felt nor empathized with? Or is it that to you, we are all vile sinners caught in Satan's snare? And so trapped, we must need saving by the church. But you misunderstand. We are not trapped by the devil. We are trapped by the beauty of a gospel that promises us so much, but in your hands has delivered us so little. So yes, I am confused. Confused about how a God who loves me would leave me outside his home for the way he made me. Confused by men who claim infallibility, but when caught in an error will proclaim, I am only a man and err as humans do. I am confused why you do not listen to the certainty of our souls, that the Holy Spirit has confirmed the truth of it in our very beings, and that just as we know we are children of heavenly parents and Christ is our Savior, we know who we are. We are not confused about who we are, but you certainly seem to be, and your confusion is not ours. Have you tried heeding the words of a modern apostle who said to listen to and understand our LGBTQ siblings? If everything was as simple as heeding our modern leaders, why haven't you given it a try? I know this seems combative, but that is because I love you, church member, and you have said you love me too. I have loved to hear the gospel of Christ as you've testified of it, and your messages have often inspired and strengthened me, which is why I am confused, when at times I hear you teach the gospel, and instead of welcoming me, you wound me. What is this love, then, that we share as followers of Christ? Does it allow you to hurt and maim without remorse? Does it tell you to push some away instead of drawing them in? Then I am confused because the love of God, I feel, does not do those things. So please, please, if there is one thing you understand, it is that we are not confused about who we are. The church causes confusion when we don't have a place in it. A place that was promised us by a man who was raised on a cross and three days later was raised from the dead when he
2: said, Come, follow me. With love, Mitchell. Thank you for that. Thank you, Mitchell Harris. And this is Mitchell Harris and Richard Osler signing off another episode of Listen,
0: Learn, and Love. And I guess our invitation is just what Mitchell suggested is what can we do in our circle of influence as allies to improve the experience for our queer members?
2: Thank you, Mitchell.